Good morning, everyone. It's Easter tide. Um, you know, in the church, a lot of times we come together on Easter and we have this big party and then it's like back to usual life, right? But in reality, it's supposed to be like a huge party for like 40 days. So we're going to keep partying together today. I want to take a moment here at the beginning of the sermon to celebrate, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Uh, You all might know the Comptons who worship here with you all, Laura and Alex, and they welcomed a little girl into their family this past week. And then we have our our grandparents row back here behind the Newmans. Um, Let's see, we've got a new granddaughter, right? With a hacks, welcome your first grandchild. First grandchild. They'll have their phone out ready to show you pictures in the Welcome Center today. And then the Van Valens welcomed a grandson this week. So lots to celebrate around here. Michael won a regional baseball tournament, right? What else we got? Anybody else got something to celebrate? We got a wedding coming up in the back. We can keep going. There's a lot of good stuff, right? Uh, But while we rejoice with those who are rejoicing today, um, I also want us to take a moment to mourn with those who are mourning. Um, We know earlier this week in Louisville, um, there was a terrible event that played out, and I haven't been back to my phone to check this. I saw something about an additional shooting this morning in Louisville, and my hearts are just heavy um, for that city and for my uh, fellow clergy members who are walking into their churches in Louisville this morning, ministering to their people there. Of course, the events in Nashville are in our recent memories as well. And so I just want to invite us to to pray for a moment um, for those particular cities, for all those who are hurting and need help. So I'm going to just give you a moment of silence and then um, I'll lead us in prayer. Lord God, our hearts are broken for those who have lost their lives far too soon. Our hearts are broken over violence that continues today. But God, we know that as much as our hearts are broken, that your heart is broken even more. That you weep with us. That you hurt with us. That you feel this pain right alongside of us. God, we lift up family members who are um, experiencing loss today. We lift up to you communities that are grieving. We lift up to you our entire nation and world that just continue um, to look on with with eyes that just wish to see it stop. And so God, um, we just turn our eyes to you, knowing that even though sometimes it's hard for us to see it or to know it, that, that you are at work, that you are um, pouring out your grace even in this moment and that you're at work setting things right in our world. God, would you show us how we can join you in that? We pray this in your name. Amen. I want you all for just a moment to think back to where your happy place was as a child. Where is the place that when you knew you were going there, that you had all this excitement and joy just like rise up in you to the point that you could hardly contain it? Anybody got a place? Pool? So he said, all right, yeah, the pool is cool for sure. Anybody else? Happy place? Where was it? 
your grandfather's house. What was it about your grandfather's house? A trapeze? What? Nice. Jacqueline, I thought Meemaw's house was playland, but I don't know. Trapeze might take it. All right. Somebody else. What other person? Your happy place. What was it? Beach Bend Park. I've never been there. I need, I've lived here for 15 years and never been to Beach Bend Park. I'll have to check it out. Uh, well, growing up, there were several places for me, but one of the happy places in my life was somewhere we had to drive about 35, 40 minutes away to get to in Owensboro, a little place called Showbiz Pizza. Does anybody else remember Showbiz? I've got the logo to help spark your memory. Yes, Showbiz Pizza. All right, so it, for those of you who didn't get to experience this, let me explain. You would go in the door and they had this ball pit, you know, where you could get in and play. Yes, to the left. Scott knows. Scott's from Owensboro. He knows. To the left. And I thought it was so cool. And now I think about all the germs and I'm like, that was really gross. It was really gross. Uh, but then there was a, an arcade where you could play all kinds of games. Um, there was pizza, of course. I'm sure it was terrible, but um, I thought it was great at the time. But then on top of it all, you got a show, right? Billy Bob was there with the Rock of Fire Explosion Band. And as I look at it as an adult, I'm like, I should have been scared to death of these robots, right? But I love them. In particular, I was all about Mitzi, the cheerleader that you see there. Uh, from the very first time I went to Showbiz Pizza, it became my life mission to earn enough tickets to buy this Mitzi doll, okay? <laughs> Which, again, was so much cuter in the memories of my mind. But, um, you know, like they had a prize counter and they had all this stuff. And usually you take all your tickets after you were done and you go buy junk, right? I didn't want the junk. I had to go. Mitzi was my mission. So every time I would go over countless years, I don't know how many years it was, I would stand countless hours in front of skee-ball because my mom helped me perfect the craft of playing skee-ball. And I would earn these tickets and I would take them home. Home, and I would count them up and I was, you know, going to get there. I was going to get that Mitzi doll. So um, it was finally time, y'all. I had saved up all the tickets. I just needed one more time at Showbiz Pizza and I would have enough tickets to get this doll. And so imagine my dismay when we make the 40-minute drive to Showbiz Pizza only to see that it has been given a new name. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese? Who is this rat, right? <laughs> like, what is going on? And so I'm like coaxing myself, walking to the door. It's going to be okay. Mitzi's still here. Mitzi's still here. So the first thing I do is I like walk up to that prize counter and look up and there is no Mitzi doll, right? There was all, all evidence of the Rock of Fire explosion band was gone, okay? And so here I was. I had come to my happy place only to experience my first real heartbreak. <laughs> I don't know what I got with those tickets, but I had hoped, y'all. I had hoped for so much more. We've all been there, right? 
We all know what disappointment feels like. By the way, mom, if you want to buy me that doll, it's $250 on eBay. All right. (laughs) Um, But anyway, (laughs) disappointment, man. Not that I looked it up this week or anything. Um, The two unnamed disciples in Luke chapter 24, they knew deep, deep disappointment. They had come to Jerusalem, to this place they thought was going to be their happy place. And they had all these high hopes coming with them. They had arrived in Jerusalem a week earlier to cheers, to Jesus being greeted like a king. It was finally happening. The thing that they've been waiting for this whole time while they've been following him around. Finally, Jesus was going to be recognized for who he was. The Messiah come to restore all of Israel. Everything's going according to plan. But then in the end... A week later, not even a whole week later, the only crown that he receives is not one made of gold, but of thorns. Instead of of him um, receiving lauds, all he received was lashes. Rather than him ascending a throne to rule and reign, instead he suffered in the most excruciating way, experiencing the, the punishment for a common criminal. He was crucified and laid in a grave in shame. Again, Jerusalem was supposed to be their happy place, but a nightmare awaited them there. And so now, these disciples, they are leaving. They're on this seven-mile walk to a nearby village called Emmaus. Not only are they leaving, but they are low. They are devastated by all that has transpired. And now, like, they have no idea what in the world they're supposed to do with themselves. They are leaving, they are low, and they are lost because the rabbi who has been guiding them and that was leading them somewhere good is gone. In verse 19, they they put into words this disconnect that they're experiencing inside. They name their disappointment. And this is what they say about Jesus. They said, he was, the, uh, was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped. There it is, that disappointment. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel leaving low and lost. I don't know about you all, but I can relate to that. I get how that feels. Um, There have been moments in my life when I have been deeply disappointed, deeply disappointed in situations, deeply disappointed in others, deeply disappointed in myself, and quite frankly, deeply disappointed with God. There have been times when things have happened to me or happened around me when I have been left questioning, like, what in the world is going on? God, like, where are you in this moment? God, I had hoped. I had hoped that that you would spare me from this hurt. I had hoped that you would prevent me from experiencing this pain. I had hoped that, that you would take this struggle away. I'd hoped that you would heal this person that I loved that you would halt hate, that you would not allow people to suffer in this way. God, I had hoped. 
I would guess that each of you have come through these doors today with a list of your I had hopes. You know, and if you did, then you, like me, know that it can be very difficult at times for us to see beyond the darkness of disappointment. Our disillusionment, it can begin to distort how we see ourselves and how we see others and how we see our world. It, it makes it, it, makes it um, kind of like this lens that we're seeing through that, that crowds out all the good, that crowds out all the light, that crowds out our ability to see the hope that things could ever be different from how they are now. It makes us begin to believe that tomorrow is just going to be more of the same as it was today. That's where our friends found themselves walking on that road to Emmaus that first Easter day. They were leaving and low and lost. But I want us to notice a few things in this story that were true for them on that day that continue to be true for us today. Yes, in this story, the disciples are leaving. They have given up, they have given in, and they are headed out of town. They are walking away. But I want you to notice who goes with them even then. Luke tells us in verses 15 through 16, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing them, from uh, recognizing him. Jesus pursues them while they're trying to run away, right? Jesus pursues them. He seeks them out. He travels with them right through their disappointment, whether they recognize it or not, because at first they don't, do they? They aren't able to recognize Jesus because they are so blinded by their hurt. Yes, in the story, they are low. They are devastated and they are depressed by all that has happened. But when they share this with Jesus, their, their fellow unknown traveler at this point, when, when they don't hide their disappointment away, does Jesus get uncomfortable or mad? Does he just get frustrated and leave them because they aren't happy or glad? No, he is patient with them in the midst of their despair. Yes, they, they are lost. Their disappointment has totally disoriented their lives. But Jesus shows up and he becomes their steadying guide. He doesn't demand that they just like get their act together right then saying like, hey, pull yourself together. Get over it. Can't you see who I am? Instead, he enters into this conversation with them. He listens and then he speaks Yes, he, he challenges them. He asks them questions that make them think. He asks them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? But what he doesn't do is rush them through their disappointment saying, you shouldn't feel this way. No, Jesus, he's present with them. He keeps walking with them right beside them as they wrestle with all their we had hopes. Now, I don't know about you, but I really appreciate this about Jesus. I really appreciate that, that, that even in our darkest and our most difficult and our most disappointed moments, even when we are leaving and low and lost, that we can know that Jesus is pursuing us with all he's got. That we can know that Jesus is patient with us, that he is present even then. He travels with us on our own roads to Emmaus. But then he doesn't even stop there. Listen to what happens next. 
they had reached their village. They had taken the seven miles to Emmaus. Um, and, and so they've completely run away, right? They've, they've completed their journey. But Jesus pretends like he's going to go further on than them. I want us to just take a moment right here and to tip our hats to Jesus, okay? Because like Jesus is pulling off like the ultimate prank, okay? Um, my little boys have become obsessed with trying to prank us. Thank you, YouTube kids, for these ideas, okay? Right, Lincoln, in the back here. Um, what, they, what they haven't quite learned yet, and now he's in the room. I can't tell you what you're getting wrong. Okay, what they haven't quite learned yet is that in order for a prank to go off well, it has to be really plausible, right? Like, it can't be beyond reasonability, you know? Um, so I'll tell you the one that, that has been the most plausible, the one they have pulled off. Lincoln, do you want to tell them what it was? Um, they put Nutella on the toilet seats. <laughs> Ooh, is right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, they, they haven't gotten this idea that it has to be believable enough to get somebody going, to play along, right? What? You did. You did. That one was good. You got that one. You got that one. All right. Um, Jesus, though, he got... <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Don't get any more ideas. You know, it has, to, it has to be believable enough, kind of like last year when we told all you guys we were having family pictures at church on Mother's Day, and y'all all showed up. Jace got his on wearing similar shirts. I've got a picture just in case y'all forgot. It was so great. It was wonderful. I know you're all afraid to come on Mother's Day this year, but we have nothing planned in this moment. But ladies, if you have ideas, come see me after the service. All right. But um, Jesus, he, he got how this works. And so um, what we need to understand is, is he plays up this whole situation with a very plausible, believable setup to deliver his punchline. Okay. He acts like he still has further to go. But did you notice that it was getting late? Luke points out. Okay. So um, everyone knew in that day and time that um, it was not a good idea for someone to travel at night. If the roads were not treacherous themselves uh, enough, there were usually robbers that were lying in wait. And so in that day, in that time, within the Jewish culture, the right thing to do, the honorable thing to do, the hospitable thing to do, in fact, the expected thing to do is if you had a traveler going with you, you wouldn't let them keep going on the journey at night. You would invite them to stay with you. And so true to custom, the disciples, they do this. They invite Jesus to spend the night with them. The person that they still don't know is Jesus. But anyway, however, um, as a good host, more was required of you. Not only was it enough for you to give them a place to lay their head, but no matter when you got home, no matter when you were getting in, it was only proper as a host to not send them off hungry to bed. You needed to feed them, right? And so they've been traveling all day. Surely they were um, hungry and in need of nourishment. And so being the good host that these disciples were, they would have sat down at their table with this traveler and would have made them a meal. The person whose home it was would have become the host and they would have taken the bread and they would have given thanks and broken the bread and given it to all those gathered around their table. This is how it worked in the Jewish culture. Everyone knew this, right? 
But on this particular night, as they sit down at this table and they serve this meal, um, something quite shocking happens. Before the host can pick up the bread and serve it to their fellow traveler, what happens instead is the stranger picks up the bread himself. He takes on the role of host. And at this point, we should all be like, how dare he, okay? Because um, I'm no etiquette expert. I'm from Muhlenberg County, y'all. I've never gotten like the hoe fort thing. They tried to teach us. Hey, cause do you remember that? They had this meal. They try to teach us. Um, but, you know, I've just never been stressed out about this. But what we need to understand in this moment, what Jesus is doing is a much bigger deal than using his salad fork to cut up his steak. All right. Everyone watching this would have been like, oh, my goodness, because there were very clear rules. There were very clear roles. There were very clear responsibilities. Everyone knew how this was supposed to work. You did not just take on the role of host. And so these disciples must have been baffled, maybe even offended in this moment, wondering what in the world is going on. But this guest turned host is undeterred. Not only does he take the bread, but he gives thanks to the father. And that's when he does it. That's when he himself breaks the bread. And that's when it happens. As he breaks the bread, hope breaks in to that moment. These disciples whose eyes have been arrested by their, their grief and their despair are suddenly opened, which leaves us to wonder why. Why is this the moment? Why is this when they recognize who Jesus is? Well, one reason might be because they had seen Jesus do this before. Okay? If these are followers of Jesus, they would have at least occasionally eaten with him. And whenever they would have gathered as a meal, because Jesus was the rabbi, he would have always become the host around the meal. He would have taken the bread and given thanks, broken it and given it to them. But not only that, there there seems to be something else deeper going on here. Jesus' actions would have likely triggered a memory in their minds. Uh, A memory of a night uh, when it was getting late and people were hungry once before. A time when darkness was drawing near and people needed to eat. It was on a day when 5,000 people, or actually men, plus women and children, had gathered to hear Jesus teach. And so now they all need a meal. But Jesus' disciples are only able to rustle up five loaves and two fish. Not much of a feast, right? I'm about as good at math as I am etiquette. But even I can tell you that there's not enough food here to feed all these people, right? You cannot break it up enough. The situation appeared to be utterly and completely hopeless. But Luke says in chapter 9, Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, what did he do? He gave thanks and then he broke them. Then he gave it to their disciples and and, uh, to distribute them. And then listen to this. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Hope had broken into despair on that evening when Jesus had broken the bread before the multitude. 
And that night, the eyes of Jesus' disciples had been opened up to new possibilities about his identity. They've been opened up to new possibilities about who he was. You see, it's right after this that Peter makes his proclamation. Right after this bread-breaking scene that he declares for the very first time that Jesus is the Messiah. The long-awaited chosen one who would redeem Israel. But now Jesus is dead. And these disciples are wondering if, if that hope had been unfounded. That it too had perhaps passed away with Jesus and had been sealed tightly shut in that grave. However, as Jesus took that bread that night at the table in the midst of this situation that once again seemed utterly and completely hopeless, as he gave thanks and he broke it, hope broke into despair once more, opening the eyes of these disciples to see a brand new possibility, one that went beyond what they had ever conceived, that Jesus was not dead. He was alive, risen from the grave. And so now, every time we come to this table, we have the opportunity to have our eyes open in the same way. We believe that Jesus himself has set this table for us. We believe that he is our host. And every time we reenact how he took the bread and he gave thanks to the father and he broke it, hope breaks in for us as well. As we realize that Jesus, the one who pursues us, Jesus, the one who is patient with us, Jesus, the one who is present, that he meets with us right here, right now, right in the midst of any and all of our disappointments to open up new possibilities to us. Through the bread, we get a small touch of his presence. And through the juice, we get a small taste of that goodness as well. He is still not dead. He is still alive. He is still risen from the grave.